0: Please, you'll make me blush. Th- Thank you, Simon, I think. Mom, you've upset my wife now. She's <laughs> quite happy with some of my DIY, so that's great. Well, good morning. It's lovely to see you. I uh, hope you're doing all right. I hope you had a, a good chance to rest um, over the summer. Uh, we got to go away. Um, we uh, drove on holiday to southern Germany. Uh, turns out southern Germany is quite a long way away. Uh, who knew? Um, and... Uh, <laughs> whilst we were there, we did all the sort of usual things one should with teenage lads. We went to the Prince of Liechtenstein's Castle, so we drove to Liechtenstein for the day because it's there. So we went to the castle and then we went to McDonald's. Uh, so all the things, all the kind of cultural high points one should. To be honest, um, it's, it's a lot like every other McDonald's I've ever been in, except the chips were £3.90 for a small portion of fries. So we, we left Liechtenstein very quickly after that. So. Well, um, if you were here last week, you'll know that last week and this week um, we uh, have got preachers' choice. Uh, so uh, Simon uh, spoke last week, and uh, he spoke very powerfully um, on not losing heart. So he, you know, he's a brilliant preacher. Better preacher is than he is actually introducer of preachers. So he did a <laughs> did a great a great job there. So if you didn't get to hear that or watch it online, do do watch it. And this morning it's me, and for the, on a rare occasion, I've got the. Uh, option to speak on whatever I like before you. So immediately all these different thoughts came into mind and I wrote them all down and I realised that, to be honest, it was just like a a middle-aged man's venting of different things. So I wanted to really talk about how come hospital car parking is so expensive and (laughs) aren't hobnobs smaller than they used to be? I wanted to talk about all of that. And to be honest, I think that would have been quite a fun half hour for you all. but the Lord said to me, actually, he wanted me to speak on a different subject, so we'll leave that for another time. Um, God said to me uh, that we should speak on this morning on the subject of fear. So that's what we're going to be doing, on a sharp intake of breath. Some of you are feeling anxious about the fact that I'm speaking on fear. You're a bit, bit fearful about it. Don't worry, it'll be, it'll be all right. Um, and uh, particularly how we break through fear and fear barriers that all of us have. I, I guess you know, pretty much everybody in the room here, to a greater or lesser extent, will know what it is to be hemmed in by fear. You know, the fear of being misunderstood, fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of mistakes, fear of embarrassing yourself whilst preaching. All of the sort of common fears that all of us have, you know. And as I was reflecting uh, this week, I was looking back on my childhood and I realised that to a large extent my childhood was characterised by fear and anxiety. But there were brief moments when I was able to break through that fear barrier. Uh, when I was able to get past my natural inhibitions. And sadly, there were uh, the moments when I managed to summon up enough courage just to get myself into trouble. Those were the the moments. Anybody else get into trouble when they were a kid? Like four of you. Thank you for your honesty. Everybody else, it's wrong to lie in church, all right? So I wouldn't say I got into a lot of trouble as a child, but as I look back, there were one or two things. There was the uh, time with the bonfire in the woods, uh, there was the incident with the motorbike on the common. Uh, there was the moment when I shot my dad in the head with an air rifle. No joke, but an- another time. Um, but I've only ever once got into trouble with the police. And uh, my parents were here first service, actually. And it turns out they didn't know this. <laughs> awkward, awkward. But we resolve that now. I've only ever once got into trouble with the police. And um, a group of us uh, kids, were, we were playing by an underpass um, just under the M3 motorway in Hampshire, where we lived. And uh, somebody uh, had the bright idea of, wouldn't it be good to see if we went up onto the motorway, we could do a running race and see if we could dodge the cars and see who would be the first one to make it to the central reservation, if at all. And that, that, was, the, that was the idea of the game. And in the moment, it seemed like a really, really good idea to do. And um, I know, looking back now as an adult, that there were some flaws with our plan, okay? I can see that now. But fortunately, God was, God was watching over me because uh, my friend got onto the hard shoulder. So He climbed up the bank, got onto the hard shoulder, and I had one leg over the barrier uh, when the traffic police turned up. And they asked us, um, rather bluntly, I felt, um, what we were doing there. And we said to them, oh, it's okay, it's just a simple game of motorway chicken. Uh, they... they They were less keen on this idea. They they seemed to be quite firm about the whole thing, actually, and they sent us back down the the bank and everything was okay in the end. And as I look back on all these different incidents, the different things that happened when I was a kid, there were some common denominators. There were some some themes there. Uh, One theme was that I was always with a bunch of friends, or more likely with my cousins, who we hung out with a lot. And just on every one of these occasions, it didn't matter what it was, whether it was motorway chicken or aiming a firework at a a cat, whatever we were doing, um, the, the, the action, the activity, was preceded just beforehand by somebody saying these immortal words. Every single time it was this. Go on, then. I'll do it if you will. Can anybody else relate to Anybody else get into trouble? And it started off, thank you, you honest folks, Next week, we're going to deal with denial. Uh, but <laughs> others of you know what it's like, you know. And y- you, think, you think to yourself, this is a daft idea. And then somebody says, go on, I will if you will. And then all of a sudden, what was a stupid idea becomes a brilliant idea, and why wouldn't you do it? And then I would end up in all kinds of trouble. And all of a sudden, there's something about that dynamic where somebody says, I'll do it if you will, that you suddenly find courage and energy to do things that you previously wouldn't. Does that make sense? And what what I want to suggest to you this morning is, what if instead of it being something that led you into trouble, possibly with the police, what if it wasn't that, but actually an exploit in God's kingdom? What if it was somebody nudging you saying, go on, I will if you will, that led to you doing some incredible things for the kingdom of God in terms of loving people and serving him and his kingdom? As Hebrews 10 says, what if it was one person nudging another and saying, let's spur one another on to love and good deeds? What would that look like? Unfortunately, the Bible in today's passage gives us an example of what life looks like on the far side of fear. Uh, You'll find it in 1 Samuel chapter 14. It's a a favorite story of mine, and uh, it's in the Old Testament. Now, obviously, when we come to look at the New Testament, uh, very often the teaching there is quite tightly packed. So it's you know, in letters with instructions and uh, doctrine. When you look at much of the Old Testament, there's, there's learning there, there's teaching, but often it's contained within the story, within the narrative, and that's what we'll discover today. So you, you learn about what God's like, and you learn about human nature, and there are lessons to be learned, but they're from the context of the story. So we're going to pick it up, 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1, just to give you the context uh, it's going to come up on the screen behind me if you haven't got your Bible with you. Um, the situation is that the nation of Israel, God's people, are at war. And they're at war with an old adversary, the Philistines. And um, they were battling them for, for many years. And they're in a desperate situation. Uh, they're heavily outnumbered. Um, it says in the Bible that the Philistines were like the sand on the seashore. they are just, you know, just hundreds of them everywhere. They've, uh, militarily, in terms of equipment, they're out, outmatched. So most of them have just got farming tools. There are only two swords in the whole nation. And to make matters worse, they've got terrible leadership. The, instead of having God as their, as their leader, they said to, said to the Lord, we want to have a king like all the other nations. And so they get the man Saul, who was strong on style but weak on substance. He was a man consumed with fear and constantly took the path of least resistance. And so they've got him as a a man just riddled with fear and insecurity. So things look pretty bleak. But by contrast, we're going to see Saul's son, the prince, Jonathan. And he's a different kettle of fish altogether. So 1 Samuel, chapter 14, uh, we're going to read from verse 1. It goes like this. One day, Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come on, let's go over to where the Philistines have their outpost. But Jonathan did not tell his father what he was doing. And right there, there's a lesson in the story. What's it saying? The story tells us right away that you don't have to be like your parents are. That you can be your own person and make your own choices. And we'll see Jonathan living out a completely different way of living, living a life of faith. Verse 2. Meanwhile, Saul and his 600 men were camped on the outskirts of Gibeah around the pomegranate tree at Migron. So they're, they're camping around. You know, They've got pomegranates on hand, and it's a nice campsite, and the toilets are clean and everything. So that's where they are. However, no one realized that Jonathan had left the Israelite camp. To reach the Philistine outpost, Jonathan had to go between two rocky cliffs that were called Bozez and Senna. So those mean slippery and sharp in the Hebrew, so difficult place to climb. The cliff on the north was in front of Michmash, and the one on the south was in front of Geber. "'Let's go across the outpost of those pagans,' Jonathan said to his armor-bearer. "'Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord.' He can win a battle, whether he has many warriors or only a few. There's a voice of faith there. The armor bearer says this, Do what you think is best, replied the armor bearer. I'm with you completely, whatever you decide. Uh, Other translations say, Do all that you have in mind to do. I'm with you, heart and soul. So in other words, the armor bearer says, Go on, I will, if you will. All right then, Jonathan told him, We will cross over and let them see us. If they say to us, stay where you are or we'll kill you, then we will will stop and not go up to them. But if they say, come on up and fight, then we will go up. That will be the Lord's sign that he will help us defeat them. Interesting plan. When the Philistines saw them coming, they shouted, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. Then the men from the outpost shouted to Jonathan, "Come come on up here and we'll teach you a lesson. Come on, climb up right behind me, Jonathan said to his armor bearer for the Lord will help us defeat them. So they climbed up using both hands and feet, and the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer, and they killed those who came up behind them. They killed some 20 men in all, and their bodies were scattered over about half an acre. Suddenly, panic broke out in the Philistine army. There's breakthrough. Both in the camp and in the field, including even the outposts and the raiding parties. And just then, to cap it all, an earthquake struck, and everyone was terrified. Wow. What a story. I love it. And what I want to do very simply this morning is just draw out a few learning points for us. That this is packed full of teaching, but we've only got time for a few this morning. And The first thing I want to realise in terms of looking at fear through the story of Jonathan and his armour bearer is that all of us, when it comes to our relationship with fear, we're either living in a shrinking or an expanding world. Let me show you what I mean. Um, my artist's abilities are limited, but I've drawn two boxes here for you, okay? Um, So, two boxes, and this is your life, okay, yours and my life. The first box here, I'm going to draw an X in it, because this box stands for your current experience, okay, there's not room for experience in this, so an X will have to do. This is what you know, this is what you've experienced, what you've done before, these are the things that you're good at, the things you feel competent in, this is your safe place, this is your comfort zone, if you like, this is stuff you have done, okay. But out here, in this much larger box, I'm going to put PX. This is your potential. These are your potential experiences in God. These are the things that might happen or that you might do. These are the things that you may be able to achieve or may be able to do. And the question for all of us is are we going to stay in this small box here, live our lives in what we currently know, or are we actually going to move out into our potential? Are we going to move out into the things that we might be able to achieve or that we might see God doing through us? But the thing we need to realize is that there are unknowns in all of this area because it's it's outside our present experience. It's beyond us, okay? And this applies to every kind of area of our lives. So for, for Jonathan and his armor bearer, they were literally physically moving into new territory. So there were unknowns there, lots of unknowns. But it's true for every area of our lives. Um, even just this summer, travel and going on holiday, I'm shifting into some areas of unknowns. I'd never driven in that part of southern Germany before. There are some unknowns. Will I, uh, will I understand the road signs? We've got a relatively old car. Will the car break down partway? I don't know. There's some unknowns there. Um, I speak hardly any German whatsoever. If I get pulled over by the police, will I be able to communicate? The only German words I know come from watching old World War II movies. <laughs> I'm thinking they're not going to be helpful, okay? So there are, some, there are some unknowns within all of this. So it's travel comes into this. Um, generosity comes into this. Um, I know of one couple who were giving their 10% into their local church. They felt that was a biblical starting point for generosity. But they said, God, we want to give to so many other different things as well. We want to be able to give away 20% of what we earn. So year on year, they increased by 1% what they were giving away. So it went from 11 to 12 to 13 and on and on. And they shifted out into the unknown. And they stepped out in generosity that way. It's true for our relationships as well. We can stay with where we're currently at, or we can move out. Uh, This is going to shock many of you, but I turn 50 next month. I know, I'm quite shocked about it as well. Uh, It's not too late to get me a present, just to say, um, just letting you know. And with my relationships with that, I can, I can just brush over that or I can choose to be deeply honest with my friends and with Emma and those around me. I can talk to, to them about what it's like to enter this new decade and perhaps maybe regrets I've got from the past or uncertainties about the aging process or will I still be relevant in ten years time, all those kinds of things. I can, I can do a superficial job and we can you know, have a party and have a few drinks and that will be nice or I can go deeper with my relationships. One of the saddest things I've ever heard was talking to an older, older gentleman who's been in his late 70s and he was describing his relationship uh, with his wife and he said to me, Paul, you know, the, the truth is a number of years ago we really just ran out of things to say to one another and I thought to myself, oh, that's so desperately sad, but I don't believe you actually ran out of things to say, I think what happened is brick by brick you walled up your heart and you chose to stay where you are and chose not to go that next level of vulnerability. It's true too when we think about loving others. You know we can stay within what we know or we can move out beyond that. Uh, We've got a team of people who um, hang out in the Costa coffee shop in town um, on on an afternoon and they're there available really to listen to people, love them, uh, pray for them, particularly pray for them if they're sick. They had a man come in the week before last. Um, He's visiting from Spain. He was walking down a flight of steps and missed the last two steps, so quite a big drop, and fell and twisted his ankle. He landed on his ankle, checked out. It wasn't broken, but there was loads of soft tissue damage. So he comes into Costa, and he's on crutches. They just chat to him, listen to him, offer to pray. He instantly feels something happening, and he walks out of Costa carrying his crutches under his arm. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) How does that... How does, that happen? How does that happen? Well, it happens because week on week, that team choose to go out of their comfort zone into the maybes, the possibilities of what God might do through them. But I want to suggest you too, there's a, there's a dynamic here. It's not a static thing. It's not like you can choose just to stay here because I think the truth is that if you make decisions not to push through fear, what actually happens is rather than your world staying that same size, I think it pushes back in on itself. Every time I just choose not to, not to push through fear, I, I step back another increment and I lose a bit of ground. You know, if it's travel, if I choose no longer to ever travel on the continent because I'm a bit nervous about it, well then, what's to stop me saying, well, I won't go around in the M25 in case I get stuck? You know, all of a sudden, your world starts to shrink back. We see that in Saul, Jonathan's father. He chose time and again to take the path of least resistance, not push through fear, and his life was a train wreck in the end. The truth is, we're going one way or the other. And the question I want to put to you this morning is, which direction is your life headed in? Are you stepping into the possibilities and the maybes of what God might do through you? Or are you brick by brick, slowly walling up your heart and trying to stay where you are? Are you going to try and stay put, maybe? Keep your head down. Keep quiet about being a Christian at work. Live for your holidays. Rely on your savings and cling on till retirement. Is that your plan? Or are you actually going to advance into all that God's got for you, and all the ifs and uncertainties and the maybes of that? There's a a writer called J.D. Houston who says this, and I love this, says, if you want something you've never had, you have to do something you've never done. If you want something you've never had, You have to do something you've never done. I want to encourage each and every one of us that life, that freedom happens in this space, not in this space. Jonathan and his armour bearer have got that. How do they manage to achieve that? Why don't we look at that a little bit? The first thing I want us to realise is that Jonathan's able to live in the ifs and the maybes because he's already counted the cost. He's already thought about the uncertainties and what might go wrong. He already knows the vulnerabilities and the risk that exists in this space. Um, I mean, think about it for a moment. Um, Think about his plan, yeah? Um, In terms of a military plan. Think for a moment about his battle plan. It's a terrible, terrible battle plan. Um, Military history is is littered with examples of bad battle plans. Um, One example, um, back in World War II, um, in Russia they were concerned about the panzers that the Nazis had and the threat that they posed. So they were trying to come up with ideas to combat that. One of their plans, was that they um, got uh, Alsatian dogs and strapped anti-tank mines to the backs of the Alsatian dogs. Um, And then they got some of their tanks and they trained the dogs to associate the underneath of a tank with food. And then the the idea was to unleash the the dogs. Don't worry dog lovers, it's okay. Um, And the plan was to unleash them so that they would then go and detonate and destroy the tanks. 1941, the first battle, these dogs are released. The handlers let them off the leash. What they hadn't anticipated was that they trained their dogs to associate food with Russian tanks, not Nazi tanks. And so the dogs charge at the Russian tanks and force an entire armored brigade to retreat because of their own dogs. That was a terrible military plan, okay? I want to suggest to you that Jonathan's military plan is even worse than that one. Think about it for a moment. Um, They're outnumbered. At least 10 to 1, most likely far more. They have just one sword between the two of them. They're advancing against a really well-defended position. It was an outpost. And they're going uphill. I've actually got a photo. We know what part of the world they were fighting in, and this is the region they were fighting in. You can see the the cliffs on the photo there. So they've got all of these things going against them. They're outnumbered, one sword, defended position, going uphill. They've got just one military advantage in their favour, just one thing that they can use to their advantage, and it's this. It's the element of surprise. That's the one advantage they got. So what's Jonathan's bright idea? Verse 8, we will cross over and let them see us. That's his, that's his bright idea. <laughs> they've got the element of surprise. I'm, if I, I'm the armor bearer in that moment. I'm like, really? That's the best you could come up with? That's our one advantage. You know, can we do a timeout, do some blue sky thinking on this? But no, he still goes with it. I want to suggest to you they weren't stupid. They knew the risks. What's the worst that could happen here? They could die. That's the worst that could happen. Jonathan had reached the point where he wasn't trying to guard anything for himself anymore. Not even his own life. That tells us that fear goes when we stop trying to protect ourselves. What are you trying to protect yourself from? I want to suggest to you that fear will go when you lay that before the Lord. When you allow him to be your protector. The choice is self-protection or God-protection, it's not both and. Psychologists tell us that we're conditioned to try and protect ourselves in three fundamental ways. Firstly, the physical need to survive, so your physical survival, just trying to stay alive, that's your condition, not surprisingly, for that. But secondly, and also very importantly, is social survival. We'll try and protect ourselves to be accepted and respected within a group of some kind. And people will go to extraordinary lengths to stick with a group and be accepted. There's a massive social pressure there. That's why people stay in bad relationships or join gangs or whatever, because they want to feel part of something. And then thirdly, we'll go to incredible lengths to protect our independence, our autonomy. We'll go to incredible lengths to protect our ability to make choices. That's very often why people get security from money. It's not the money itself. It's the fact that that money gives me options and choices, and I want to guard that in order to feel safe. So put them all together. Bottom line, we're all trying to protect our life, our choices, and our reputation. But here's the thing. Jesus wants them all. He wants them all. Romans 14, 8 says this. Paul says, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. It's now his life. Luke chapter 6, on reputation, Jesus says this. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus is saying, I want it all. I want your life, I want your choices, I want your reputation. So the question before each and one, every one of us is this. Who does your life belong to? Does it belong to you and you let Jesus have access to little bits? Or is it all His and handed over to Him? And then He chooses what happens and where you go and what you do and how you use the money. Whose life is it? Is it your life or is it His life? The Bible is in no doubt. If we want to be a follower of Jesus, it means our whole life given over to Him. If something is precious and important to us, then we'll try and protect it. But we reach this sometimes crunch point where what's most important to you? Is it the things that you're clinging on to or is it following Jesus? Because once you reach that point, there's freedom. Once you reach the point where it's all Jesus is, there's freedom. I became a Christian when I was 14. Um, it was over a period of months, but I, there was one sort of decisive moment when I went to a, a Christian camp and I just knew this was it. I'm going to dedicate my life to Jesus. I'm going to follow him. And it was the summer holidays and I was about to go back to school and I realized this was kind of make or break for me in the school environment. I could go back and keep it on the down low and be really quiet about it and kind of be wishy-washy and secretive about my faith. Or I could just lay it on the line and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Um, so I knew that I had to go in. I had to jump in both feet. So I went to our little church bookstall, and on there, they, they had a number of things, little things for sale, but they had a lapel pin there. And I bought the most Christian lapel pin I could find for my blazer, school blazer. I, I chose this one that's come up from the screen. It, it was a multicolored cross with, with a dove on it. You know, it's, it doesn't get more Christian than that. It just screams born-again Christian at you. Now, please understand, this wasn't a fashion choice for me. What it was, was a line in the sand. It was a statement like, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm, I'm, just, you know, I'm saying it loud and clear. I, I will always remember, I think, to my dying day, the first day I walked into school with that on. I went to a, a boarding school, all boys boarding school, 400 boys, um, and just basically a shark pit of desperately insecure adolescent young men who were all looking around for someone else who was a little bit different that they could then pick on. Well, you can imagine. I mean, this, there was blood in the water. And literally, it felt like the, the news about me becoming a born-again Christian had, had spread faster than I walked down the corridors. You know, and I remember walking down past the library and the torrent of abuse I got over that. I, I knew it was coming, but I didn't realize how severe it would be. The thing is, after two days, it began to die down. I mean, there was always constant jibing and difficulty. But for me, I knew I'd won a victory. I was still standing. I was still encountering Jesus. I was still loving him. And I'd put a stake in the ground saying, this is who I am. I'm a follower of Jesus. And you know what? For the first time in that school environment, I felt free. The abuse had increased, but the freedom in my heart was just so much more and all of a sudden I'd shifted into this space. All of a sudden I'd expanded the way that God might use me. The point is who does your life belong to? Does it belong to you or does it belong to Jesus? You know, it's not difficult to see a time when Christians will be exposed to even more public ridicule. Even now I'm struggling to think of the last time I saw a Christian portrayed on the TV or in media in a positive light. In dramas and so forth. There's always a sort of an angle or a twist on it. And there may be a time when it gets even more ser- serious than that. And when push comes to shove, where will you stand? Will you be found protecting your life, your choices and your reputation? Or will you be found staking the ground? Like Paul saying this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live... In the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's who I am. Jesus is calling all of us and asking us this question, whose life is it? Is it yours or is it his? And then lastly, just to take time, the last thing I want us to get from this passage is that loyalty beats fear every time. Loyalty trumps fear almost every time. I asked myself the question, would Jonathan have attacked this Philistine outpost on his own? Mm, possibly, probably not. Would his armor bearer have attacked this Philistine outpost on his own? I'd say definitely not. But in doing this together, in nudging one another, saying, go on, I will if you will, suddenly they found a courage buddy. And suddenly in God they found the ability to do what they couldn't do on their own. Now, if you've been around for a while, you may remember me sharing one of my uh, favorite stories, which is when I was in uh, sixth form. Uh, I went to a sixth form that was a real mixed bag, um, lots of uh, very academic people who went on to Oxbridge, but also some quite tough characters, and there were some gangs operating in my sixth form college. Really serious, hard-nosed guys. And uh, one of my friends, Mike, had managed to upset this, ga- this one gang. He'd knocked a wing mirror in a car park, in a student car park, I think. And word had got around the sixth form that these guys were looking for an excuse to get him. And this was serious. These were serious threats. So one day my friend, Mike, is, um, walks into the sixth form common room and it's like a hut, you know, one of these sort of porter cabin things linked together. But maybe about half a third the size of this room. Uh, so sort of cheap furniture, lino floor, plastic chairs. And Mike comes in and he walks over to his group of friends, our group of friends, in one corner who are sat in one corner and he sits with his back to the, to the double doors. Anyway, this bunch of guys comes in uh, through the doors and uh, they're looking around for him. Mike's blissfully unaware. And then he said to, said to me, you know how sometimes you can sense an atmosphere shift in a room? He said, I suddenly became aware that conversations were dying down and I turned around to see what it was, what was going on. And then he said to me, my heart sank when I saw this, these six guys lined up. And then one of them saw my face, pointed to me, and I knew my number was up. And he said, so I stood to my feet, my, you know, my knees are trembling. And I faced these guys. And you know how in times of difficulty, sometimes it's like things slow down. If you're, like, if you're in a car accident or something like that, everything goes into slow motion. And he said to me, once I stood up, the room went just completely silent. There's not all, everybody knows what's about to happen. You could hear a pin drop. And then he said, in my foggy mind, after a moment or two, I became aware of a sound. And I, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out what the sound was. And then I realized the sound was coming bef- behind me from behind me. And he said, my brain slowly figured out what the sound was. He said, I realized it was the sound of plastic chairs scraping across a lino floor as one by one, every single one of my friends stood to their feet. And all of a sudden, the tough guys weren't so tough anymore. They backed down and never bothered him again. Why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because I think from time to time in our lives, there will come those moments where you and I need to hear the sound of a plastic chair scraping across a lino floor. When we're facing bereavement or opposition in the workplace or financial crisis or sickness, and we need to know that. But equally too, there will come times when others need us to stand for them. And the question is, what kind of a Christian are you gonna be? What kind of a follower of Jesus are you going to be? Most of us know John 3.16, um, where, uh, where, where it says, this is... Um, oh, sorry, I'm just getting overwhelmed with emotions here. Most of us know John 3.16. It says this, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that those who believe in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Probably the most well-known bi- verse in the Bible. But in a beautiful piece of biblical symmetry... 1 John three sixteen says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. What's the standard on Christian loyalty? The standard is that you would be willing to give your very life for the person on your left, the person on your right, the person in front of you, and the person behind you. I wonder what we could achieve in God if we live like that. If you knew that you faced difficulty and people would stand with you to the core. I, I don't know what the days ahead of us face. I think we're, you know, there's going to be some choppy waters. And the question for each one of us is what kind of a follower of Jesus are you going to be? Are you going to stand with people in financial need? When you say you're going to pray, oh, I'll pray for you about that. Do you mean you're going to offer a one-liner? Or do you mean you're going to spend time praying and fasting for that person? These people leading these new small groups... Are you going to just say, oh, I hope it goes well? Or are you going to say, I'm going to join you for the term and I'm going to give myself to this mission and see what God might do through us? You know, Lord, deliver us from middle-class Sunday niceness. It's time for the people of God to expand into all that he's got for us. It's time for us to take ground for the things of his kingdom. You and I have got this, just this one and only life. It's time to have some adventure with it. And then the last thing I want us to realize is that when Jonathan and his armor bearer do this, then all heaven breaks loose. Do you see the final line? they like a throwaway line. There's an earthquake all of a sudden. Uh, now I ask myself, you know, uh, is this because this was part of God's plan all along? You wanted to use Jonathan and his armor bearer to do this? Or is it that Jonathan and his armor bearer came up a, with a great idea and God said, I'll bless that? I think the answer is yes. Both of those. There's something about the heart of God that's moved when his sons and his daughters gather together and say, we're going to push in to this. We're going to take some grounds for the things of God's kingdom. So as I bring us to a landing, what is this story, what's this narrative telling us here this morning, loud and clear? It's saying this. It's saying life exists in this part of the equation. That's where life really happens. This is existing and survival. This is where life happens. It's saying that when we love God more than our reputation or even our life, then fear has nowhere left to hide and you can do anything in God. And lastly, that when we stand with one another and for one another, ground gets taken and even ground gets shaken and God moves. Those are the kind of people we're called to be. That's what I'm longing for for each and every one of us this year.